John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress way back in 1678. It is said by those who can speak with authority on such things to be one of the most significant works in the history of English literature. Uh, it has been translated into some 200 plus languages, has never been out of print. Extraordinary work. I encourage you, if you never have read it, to pick up at least a, uh, a uh, abridged copy, if not the full thing, perhaps even in the, the original uh, King James-style English. It is a beautiful work. As if those of you who don't know, it's an allegorical tale of a man named Christian who's in the course of his trials and adventures is making his way uh, from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And along the way, he has no few encounters with with different places and, and, and uh, dangers, but also meets several interesting figures along the way, one of whose name is, is Hopeful. And Hopeful and Christian are, are making their way up along the path one day, and they decide, unfortunately so, to take a shortcut. And in short order, they find themselves uh, laid upon by giant despair, who takes them captive, drags them into Doubting Castle, where he keeps them prisoner for some period of time. Giant despair is not a nice figure. Uh, This is one of the darkest, ugliest passages in the whole book, Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, He is intent on uh, beating them day after day. Uh, He is intent on urging them to despair, to give up, perhaps even take their own lives if that's what it takes. He's pressing on them to crush their hope and destroy their aspirations to make their way towards the celestial city. And as I said, it's one of the darkest passages in the whole book. It is, it is quite striking seems almost rather modern in many respects. It begs a question, that passage as you read it and just let it sink in upon you and the insight that's there, begs a question, it prompts a question in the reader. What do you do? What do you do when you find yourself held captive by despair? What do you do when you feel like you're caught, imprisoned, encircled, and you can't get out? Well, the Bible is not silent on this issue. The whole reason that John Bunyan is writing about it is because the Bible speaks to it, and he had come to find the Lord's comfort in and through the gospel. If you'll turn with me to uh, Psalm 13. Psalm 13 is where we're going to be sinking uh, some thought and time over the next little bit. Psalm 13, it is not long. It's only six verses, but oh, is it profound in the insight that we have here. Psalm 13... Verses 1 to 6, hear now the Word of God. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice 
and your salvation, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord, thank you for the Psalms. Thank you for their beauty. Thank you for their candor. Thank you for loving us enough to place this song book, this giving us this prayer book in the midst, the very heart of the Bible. Thank you for this record of David's own experience and his struggle, but not just the struggle, but the way through. We pray this morning that you'd give us, all of us here, insight into this. We need this so, so desperately. Um, There's not a one of us that either has not or will not or perhaps even is in need of this text at this very moment. So we pray that you would please, please, in your mercy, equip us and help us to see your kindness to us shining forth here. We pray in your name. Amen. The word despair comes from, as I understand it, the Latin word desperare, desperare, excuse me, desperare, sperare meaning hope, the, the D in the front of it as the prefix canceling that out, meaning without hope, no hope. Despair is uh, the ultimate loss of hope. It is a, a despondent forlornness. It, it is a serious thing. What causes it? Well, without going into too much detail, I suppose you could put it this way. The, what, the fundamental causes of despair are times, seasons in our lives when we feel overwhelmed by what's in front of us and undone with sorrow as we face that. And that can be at a personal level, an individual level, struggling with, you know, perhaps finances in turmoil or relational chaos, issues at home, issues at work, future uncertain. It can be certainly at the individual level. It can be at the societal level. It can be looking across the breadth of, of, our, of our land, maybe just our community, but maybe the whole thing. And a spiritual, a deep spiritual fatigue and dismay at what we see in terms of corruption and racism and injustice. A despondent forlornness. It's a serious thing. It's right here in Psalm 13. David is feeling it. He's emoting it. He's recording it. What do we do with it? Well, David speaks to that as well. What do we do with it? Now, there's three basic options Three basic options in terms of how you can deal with despair. Um, one is um, ignore it. And many of us try that. And many of us can testify to being, you know, card-carrying ignorers of despair and, and where it got us. I'll call that the secular approach. I'll call that the ignore it as in suppress it, drown it, distract yourself from it, binge on something, whether it's chemical or social media or show after show after show after show, 
Just ignore it. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe not. That would be one approach. Another would be what I'll call the moralistic approach. And that is get over it. Not ignore it, but get over it. Put on your stinking big boy pants. Stop your whining. Remember, other people around you and preceding you have had it a lot harder and worse than you. Get over it. Both of those first two approaches have a lot in common when you think about it. The ignore it or get over it, both fail to take it seriously, fail to dress the wound well, and so ultimately are sure to lend to a great deal or cause a great deal of harm. There's a third option, and that's the Christian approach. And it's what you see here in Psalm 13. And it goes like this. Face it. Face it. Look what you're dealing with square in the eye, but don't try to deal with it yourself. Take it to Jesus. Give it over to the Lord and let Him pull you out of it. That's what we see here in Psalm 13. That's the message here of of the text. Not ignore it, not just get over it, but turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord recognizing that you're entrapped and you need to be freed. That's the message of Psalm 13. It's it's what David is trying to get across to us. The Lord is the one who guides us out from despair. The Lord guides us out from despair. We need to learn to walk that path. He guides us out from despair. We need to learn what it is to walk that path. Now, that path, that path has a series of steps that you can see here in the psalm. It's something akin to a climb that begins way down in the mire in the pit. And you begin to make your way out with a series of steps. Now, what are those steps? You can see it there in your outline if you, if you printed that out and brought it with you. The first would be um, beginning from the pain of desolation, moving then through through the prayer of supplication, and to, you see how we're doing this? From, through, and to a destination, and to the peace of resolution. So you begin with the pain, you move through prayer, and peace begins to come, Okay? That's what we see here in Psalm 13, and the way through, the way through uh, despair, out of, out of the clutches of giant despair. Well, let's look at this together if we can. From the pain, this is where we begin, from the pain of desolation. This is where the journey begins, in the pit, in the morass, in the mire, and dealing with it, facing it, as David does. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? This is a time of anguish for David. How long? Four times. Four times he asked that question. How Long. The, the, you cannot miss the emphasis with the repetition. You feel the weight of the question. How long? And David here is not asking for information as like, you know, you know 
Is it three more hours? Is it a few more days? It's not a question seeking information. He's expressing his dismay. He's expressing his dismay, his hurt, his pain, his struggle. This is incredibly personal and profound. It's a time of deep anguish brought out because he's feeling so alone, so, so very alone. There's, there's, there's a connection here that's been lost. He, he speaks of, of being forgotten. Lord, have you forgotten me? Have you turned your face? Have you hidden yourself from me? This connection has been lost. This, this felt presence of the Lord something that was near and dear and precious to him, life-sustaining, seems to be... It's like the wire's been cut. Too much interference. No signal. That lost connection then creates this, this deep disruption within his heart, his thoughts. You see it here just in verses 1 and 2. Are in deep turmoil. Profound turmoil inside. And as though that's not bad enough, he speaks of an enemy, an enemy who seems to be, if you will, gaining on him, and that is creating all kinds of other things within his heart. His, perhaps his, his reign as king could be under threat, and then that's creating, I'm sure you can see that as you move on, spinning up questions about God's dealings with him and the significance of that and the justice of all of that and the, where is the Lord's faithfulness and all of that. We'll get to that in a minute. So this is where the journey begins. The journey begins in the pain of desolation. And David is showing us the need to be completely transparent with that. No fakery, no effrontery, no pretending, just raw honesty before the Lord. Some, I'm sure no few of you here are familiar with Ernest Shackleton and the voyage of the endurance, the, the attempt to uh, transgress the, the Antarctica continent back in uh, 1914. The accounts, if you've ever read any of that story, are just harrowing, to, to say the least. It is said that Shackleton, in order to recruit his crew, placed an ad along these lines in the Times. Uh, I guess it must have been in 1913 or so. This is how the ad uh, is said to have read. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in event of success. The point being that we need to know what we're getting ourselves into. The point being that we need to count the cost. We need to, when we're speaking to those who are not yet Christians, we need to be honest about what it is they're getting themselves into. When we're coming alongside younger Christians or struggling Christians or just looking in the mirror at this Christian, (laughs) we need to be honest about what it is we've gotten ourselves into and transparent and plain about that. The reality is despair will seek to drag you away It will. Doubt will threaten to encircle you and pull you under. The struggle is real. 
just because you are a disciple of Jesus does not make you immune from any of this. And history very well bears those marks, as do the Psalms. As do the Psalms. We need to be plain about this. Be honest about this. Be ready for this, not be shellacked by this. When it comes, when it happens, Jesus guides us out from the the dismay of the despair. We need to learn what it is to walk that path. And it begins, it begins with acknowledging the pain of desolation. You have to begin recognizing where the journey begins when it comes to despair. It's reality. It's possibility. Okay, but moving on, moving on through the step out of the pit as we're progressing out, what is the next thing that we see? How do we begin to make this climb? Well, that takes us to the second point, through the prayer of supplication, asking, pleading, humbly, earnestly. That's what supplication is. It's not a word I know we use a lot except in connection to prayer. Well, it does mean asking, pleading, humbly, earnestly. That's what the word means. And you see that in verses 3 and 4. You see this desperate, dependent prayer, David crying out here in verses 3 and 4. Let's look at it. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Again, you hear this honesty here reflected in David's heart. Two things to consider here. His fears and his pleas. His fears and his pleas. You hear this word lest, lest, lest come up three times. They're expressing what he's concerned about, what he's afraid of. So his fears, first off, personal fears. He's fearing for his own life, frankly. That seems to be fairly clear. Perhaps, it's not, we're not quite sure because we don't know the exact setting of this, the context, but it's, perhaps it could be he's referring to an illness, or a personal physical assault. Not quite sure. Could be either one. Either way, he recognizes his profound dependence upon the Lord to sustain him. So he speaks. He speaks of his own personal fear. But he also speaks, and I alluded to this a second ago, and this is where I want to come back to it. I'll put it this way. His covenantal fear. Recognize again, David is the anointed king of Israel. And God, the living God, the God of Israel, has covenanted with David, made certain promises to him that he will always have an heir upon the throne in some way, shape, or form, and a greater descendant would come to be the savior of his people. How can that be? You hear, you feel it, David quaking with wonder and concern and confusion. How can that be if I'm snuffed out? How can those prayers come to pass? How can it be? So his fears are on display here. His pleas are certainly on display here. Humbly, humbly, oh Lord, without your help, I have no hope. Without your help, I have no hope. So humbly, humbly, he's acknowledging it. But, but at the same time, yet earnestly. And those two things don't need to cancel one another out. They're somehow they're together here. The humble boldness, the bold humility at the same time. 
because he's saying, you could almost put exclamation points after these requests, look at me. When you see him say, consider me, you could translate that, look at me. Answer me. Speak to me. There's an intensity here. It's not just, oh, would you please? No, it's a fervency to it. Rescue me. At the same time, humble and earnest. And that, my friends, is the part of the way forward. That's part of the way forward that David showed us. Part of the, the, the steps, the climb out of the pit, the way we make our way out of the pit. With these pleas, through the prayer of supplication, these, pray, these pleas, expressing our fears, expressing our fears and making our pleas to be known. There is no room in the Psalms for the stiff upper lip. There's just no place for it. Now, you may have been brought up to think that way and to pray that way, but I just want to gently challenge you on that. There is no room biblically for a stoic, emotionless passivity in response to the events of your life. There's no room for that whatsoever. I know, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, there are no few, say, Downton Abbey fans in the room or the, the new thing, that, like the prequel, Belgravia, I think is what it's called. And you think of how many times, how many scenes there are where you, nobody knows how anybody feels because they're just putting on so much of a show. Now, I'm not knocking. Those are period pieces. I get it. That's a culture. I understand. But don't transpose that over into your prayer life. It makes for great drama and great ratings and lousy spirituality. Horrific spirituality. We're being called here, we're being shown here the need to be honest, open in our expression, our pleas before the living God. That's the Psalms here. This is the Psalms here. This is the prayer book. This is the, the song book that God has given to his people, to us. Now, that should tell us something. If this is the way he is showing us how to pray, that should tell us something, no matter how disruptive that may feel to your assumptions about prayer. The earnestness and the humility that must be on display there. Again, Jesus, the Lord himself, is guiding us out from despair we need to learn what it is to walk that path, and part of that has to do with going through the prayer of supplication. Now, here's how we make our way. Here's how we make our way. Okay, so it takes us to the third point. So you begin from the place, the pain of desolation. You make your way through the prayer of supplication. Now, where are we? Where eventually do we find ourselves? without, you know, any sense of time frame or, you know, expectation as to how long, but where we find ourselves beginning to get to a place of resolution. And you see that again with the psalm, Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, it's really rather striking here 
David does it twice, and if you look at the way it's, it's um, the arrangement of the verses in verses 5 and 6, you can see it very clearly. It's like an A-B-B-A outline here. Um, David looking back that he might then be able to move forward. So, see, he hearkens to the past that he then might be able to move into the future, okay? And again, you see that very clearly. He's looking back. He's, he hearkens back to his own personal trust in the Lord. There's a rich relational history here. His is a settled, not perfect, if you know anything about the life of David, you know that's, that's the case, a, but a settled confidence and reliance upon the Lord. So he's looking back. He's sort of regaining his sanity, recalibrating the compass here. He's looking back towards that and also at the same time looking back towards the Lord's good care of him through the years. Your steadfast love, the way you've held me and held, held me fast, held me firm, been with me. You think, in terms of what would that be for David? Well, I mean, he was, first off, he was born into the tribe of Israel. That was good. Uh, he's anointed as the king. He's preserved and protected all that time as Saul's trying to take him out. Raised, exalted as the king and given these incredible promises, amazing promises. So that who do we call Jesus among his many beautiful names? The son of who? David. David's been dealt with very well, very kindly, very generously by the Lord. And he's hearkening back to this, looking back, looking back. And that enables him, again, as he's recovering his sanity, he's pivoting, pivoting on his past, enabling him again to hear God's promises anew and afresh. Even at that moment, what does he say? I will rejoice and sing. I will exalt and celebrate. Now, how much of his circumstances have changed at this point? We have no reason. There's, no, there's nothing in this psalm to say, whatever was bothering me is, is now done. That's, there's, no, there's no inference rightly read into the psalm that his circumstances have changed. But something more, far more striking, far more fundamental has changed. What is it? David, his own heart as he has moved through this journey, as he started at the point moving from, from that pain of desolation through the prayer of supplication and then to, to the peace of resolution. But here's the point. To get to that place, you've got to go th through it. To get to the end of the journey, you've got to go through the journey. And all that that means and all the struggles therein. Let me bring you back. Maybe it was a little unfair to leave you hanging there in Doubting Castle, right, uh, with giant despair. You may be wondering, what, what happened to, to Christian and Hopeful there? Well, um, I'm so glad you asked because then I'm going to tell you. Uh, so uh, they had been trapped for some number of days there in the castle, uh, and that time of despair had, been, had proved to be a, a sweet, even though it felt bitter, 
opportunity for Christian to recover his sense of the beauty of the promises of the Word. He and Hopeful have been praying at night. It's Saturday night, moving into, not coincidentally with John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress, Sunday morning. And this is where you pick up in the narrative. What a fool. This is Christian speaking as he remembers he has a key in his coat. What a fool. I have a key in my bosom called promise. That will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. Good brother, pluck it out of thy bosom and try. Then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open with ease, and both Christian and Hopeful came out. Now, what you see here is a really interesting dynamic and something that you could describe this way as, a, as an active patience. An active patience. Two things here. On the one hand, waiting and depending on the Lord to be sure, but at the same time, pulling out the key. Laying hold of the key pushing it in that lock. An active patience. That's certainly what you see here in Psalm 13. How so? David keeps praying. Did you notice know not a two-verse psalm? <laughs> There's stages to this journey that he is making. He keeps going. He keeps pressing through. He looks back that he then might be able to move forward. Again, the Lord is the one who's guiding him, guiding us out from despair. We need to learn what it is to walk this path. And as we do, as we do, even if the circumstances around us have not changed, we will be as we come to this piece of resolution. Let me end with this. Lighthouses. Lighthouses, you could put it this way, were the pioneers of social distancing. Ha ha. Um, standing far apart, of course, up and down eastern and western coastlines, um, standing out there as lonely sentinels in the night. Uh, so, so picturesque. So many, how many you know, photo ops lighthouses, of course, create. But for many years... And many years ago, lighthouses were far more than just a place to get a cool photo. People's lives hinged on the functionality of a lighthouse. Um, interestingly enough, I was reading an account just this past week about one in Cape Elizabeth, Maine, called the Two Lights Lighthouse. And an incident back in 1885... And a keeper, a lighthouse keeper by the name of Marcus Hanna, and the shipwreck of the, the uh, Australia. Here's what went down. The Australia co comes ashore in a way you didn't want to, only about 100 yards away from this lighthouse in the midst of this horrible, horrible, horrible winter storm. Visibility was nothing. So even though there was a lighthouse, it really didn't help them that much. 
So the ship goes aground. Uh, the captain is, has been swept out to sea. There's only two crewmen left, and they are hanging for their dear lives to the mast. So Marcus Hanna, he's off, he, his shift has ended. He's terribly sick. He's gone to bed, but his wife can see the silhouette of this ship out there on the rocks, and he's the only one that can help. So he tells his assistant, you go get help. I'll go. He hauls himself out of bed. He makes his way those hundred yards down to the ship, crawling on his hands and knees in the ice and the snow in the midst of this storm, this blinding storm. He tries to throw the rope to these guys, to the first guy, whose eyelids, by the way, are iced shut and his jaw frozen in a, the, the look of a scream. He tries to get the, the rope to the first guy and can't, so he has to go down into the water and haul the guy out. He does that successfully. He then begins to make his way towards the second guy and is just beginning to haul him out when the help that he had sent his assistant to go get finally arrives, and they get the second guy out as well. What a rescue. What bravery. What courage. What initiative. In fact, he was uh, awarded accordingly a gold life-saving medal for bravery. The reason I tell that story is simply this. Over the last half hour, I have kept saying this phrase or these sentences. The Lord guides us through, guides us out from, the Lord guides us out from despair. We need to look to Him and learn to, to walk that path. Something along those lines, right? I keep coming, circling back to that, right? When we say the Lord guides us, guides us out from despair, we need to have this rescue by Marcus Hanna in mind, in the sense of that's the way Jesus guides us through, guides us out from despair. It's that level of rescue. It's that level of his involvement in the, in the guiding, if I, if I can put it that way. And that's the very thing that we see here in the psalm. Words used as such as you, you get down to end especially in verses 5 and 6. His, David's rejoicing in the Lord's salvation and the Lord's salvation and His steadfast love. That, that, who is this psalm ultimately about? It's just about Jesus. Jesus' salvation. Jesus' steadfast love. When, when we read back in verses 1 and 2 of David's felt experience of being forgotten and the Lord's face being hidden from him, we need to understand that Jesus is the one who experienced that truly to the uttermost for us on the cross. Jesus is the one who has experienced Psalm 13 more truly and more fully than any for us, for you and for me. Now, let's just take that, if we can, and transpose that into our trials, our experiences of despair, knowing that He has been through the ultimate despair into its very depths for us, for us. So let me just put it this way. I want to be very careful how I say this because I don't want to demean anybody's struggle and pain. But ultimately, our sense of being forgotten, any experience we've ever had 
where we thought the Lord had turned his face from us was only felt. It was not real. For Jesus, it was eternal and real. Why? Why did he go through that so that you and I never would? Now, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the anguish, in the midst of feeling cut off, in the midst of the dismay and the despair, that, my friends, can hold us up. That is the steadfast love that we can hearken back to, that we can recall as we move forward, as we lay hold of promises, as we pull the key from our coat and thrust it into the lock and turn it that the bolt would open. Again, He is the one, it's the Lord Himself who delights to guide His people out from despair. We need to learn what it is to walk that path. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank You for the Psalms. Thank you for how they capture the whole of life. We ask that you would um, use even this psalm to teach and train us in our own response to anguish and pain and despair, whatever the source of that may be. Help us not to be so foolish as to think we can just look within but to know that really, chiefly, we need to be looking to you. We pray that you'd help us to be honest, to help us to be humble and be earnest, to lean into you with all we are, not just for eternal life, but for the daily struggles. You are close at hand. You are right with us. You've made that clear again and again and again. Thank you for the assurances. Thank you for the key that you've put in our coat, for the promises and your presence. Pray these things in your name. Amen.